Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Today we're going to be talking about the very early years of the English in India. In the late 16th century, a group of London merchants petitioned Elizabeth I to let them create a company to support English trade in Asia. And in 1600, Elizabeth granted a charter to the English East India Company for 15 years, which James I turned into rights in perpetuity. Now, often in our telling of this story, we then fast forward to the 18th century and the victory of the by then British East India Company over the Bengalis in 1757 at the Battle of Plassey or the so-called Indian Mutiny a century later. And we don't dwell on the early beginnings. But there's a very different story to tell here, one that makes clear how the success of the English presence in India in the 17th century was a very near-run thing and that the company then operated in a very different way. And my guest today will help me explore it. I'm delighted to introduce Dr. David Vivas, Leverhulme Early Career Fellow at Queen Mary University of London. He is the author of The Origins of the British Empire in Asia, 1600 to 1750, which was published in 2020. So he's the perfect person to speak to about the early years of the British in India and where so much of the time we've been focused on a later story and we've got things kind of wrong about that early period. Because it's true, David, isn't it, that historians have often worked with a model that's explained the British Empire's success, kind of looking at it from the end by emphasising its power, so talking about strong naval force and aggressive trading policies and robust fortifications. But you've discovered another story about the very early East India Company. Yeah, I think that there has been one eye on what happens later, especially in the 19th century, where the British are all-powerful and they're gobbling up the Indian subcontinent and they're dominating much of South Asia. And I think that that's theological, that looking earlier, but with knowledge of what becomes, that inevitability has coloured the way we treat this early period, almost as a kind of pre-colonial. And we often do that with the history of this period, is that it's either pre-colonial or it's colonial. And in a way, saying pre-colonial does nothing, really. And it sort of flattens what is really a complex, rich period in which the English aren't dominant at all. And it's an entirely new narrative for explaining not just English overseas enterprise, but also the history of Asia, independent of this domineering and rampaging 
imperialism. And I think that's really important because otherwise we sort of rob this period of its agency and its own complexities if we just bound it up with what happens down the line. And obviously it's important to look at this earlier period because it helps us understand how that transformation happens. But that transformation is almost two centuries down the line. So let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. Start with the foundation of the English East India Company. What was the intention behind it? Well, in many ways, a lot of people see the English East India Company as this unique, novel enterprise. But actually, it forms part of a longer history of the English crown attempting to catch up with its neighbours. Many of the kind of marginal powers in Europe... The Portuguese, for example, which are slightly kind of underpopulated, impoverished state perched on the Atlantic Rim of Europe. And what happens is by the end of the 15th century, it starts to travel down the west coast of Africa and eventually rounds the Cape of Good Hope in southern Africa and enters the tropical waters of the Indian Ocean. And that access to the spice trade, which is really the most valuable trade in the world at that point, and has been for millennia, and it's the Silk Road's which really begin in not just in China, but also in Central Asia and also have branches that stretch all the way out into archipelago, Southeast Asia, which today we call Indonesia and Malaysia. And a lot of what travelled across Central Asia and into Europe, as well as silks or spices, pepper, nutmeg, cardamom, all these are in the back of our cupboards today that have been there for years and we promised ourselves we're going to use them at some point and we never do. That once upon a time they drove the world economy and just accessing that trade and then importing it into Europe transformed small powers like the Portuguese into these giant global behemoths that straddling Europe and Asia. England at the late 16th century is very much Portugal 100 years ago. Its main export is wool, it's predominantly agricultural. It's definitely one of sort of the weaker commercial powers in Europe and it looks at its Iberian neighbours with envy. And therefore there are certain initiatives that the Tudor state launched really from the 1550s onwards to find its own way to Asia. And it doesn't want to take Portugal's route. It doesn't want to go through the Atlantic and round the Cape of Good Hope because, you know, it's England and we've got to do it our way. So we take the more logical approach of scrambling through the Arctic ice, the Northwest Passage, through what we now know as Canada, which has only become passable in recent decades because of global warming. But back then, we now know it's completely ice locked and it was therefore an impossible venture. And to do that, the English state is not up to the task of financing massive explorations and expeditions into the ice. And therefore, from the 1550s, the Tudor state really outsource their overseas ventures and they bring in private capital and private actors to team up with. So when the inevitable failure of the Northwest Passage happens, they then turn to the northeast. Aha, let's go this way. There'd be less ice. And they take the passage around Scandinavia and northern Russia which uh, once again is no less ice-locked than the Northwest Passage. And they fail to reach Asia, but what they do find is Russia. And again, by this time, the 1570s, Elizabeth I brings in private merchants to help fund these explorations. And OK, if we can't reach Asia, let's do trade with the Tsar of Russia, or Muscovy, as it was known at the time. And she forms a Muscovy company where the capital and the expertise and the financial risk and burden is placed on the shoulders of these private people. But they have the authority or the delegated powers of the crown to back them. So it's a royal enterprise, but the crown has none of the risks associated with it. 
Very much Elizabeth I style, I think, on the whole. Very Elizabeth, if you think about Francis Drake and privateering. So it's your benefit, obviously, from the trade. But the risk is placed. And that says something about the weakness of the English state at this period, but also the savvy of Elizabeth, of course. So it's that context in which the failure to reach Asia, either by the northwest or the northeast, a new East India company is formed on the same principle is that the crown will invest and it will provide delegated royal powers. But the burden, the cost, the personnel, the ships will be borne by a group of private merchants. And that's the context in 1599 when 215 private aristocrats and gentry and merchants come together to form the governor and company of merchants trading to the East Indies. So it's a way to access the spice trade and to benefit the way the Portuguese have. But because the Portuguese have a monopoly over the spice trade at this point, and it's a heavily militarised, they've got large carracks of like bristling maritime castles of three storeys and cannons and the English can't compete. So they have to invest heavily in ships and they have to find ways in which to carefully avoid the Portuguese in those early years. So what do they do in those early years? Where do they go and what do they do? So they're all going to one place, essentially, which they describe as the Spice Islands, which today we would call Indonesia and Borneo and Malaysia. And some of the islands there in the Banda Islands, for example, is the only place you can cultivate nutmeg in the whole world at that point. It's a very small island, not very many miles squared. And you can stand on one end and you can kind of see in the distance the other. And yet all the world's nutmeg is contained in this one island. And the Portuguese are then from 1600, the English, and from 1602, the Dutch are fighting for control of the small island. So they head to this very small geographical area, which in terms of the value of trade is just uncomprehensible. If you think about the trade in oil today or something like that, the world economy can be valued at that point in time by the import of spices into places like Europe and India. And so it's a very few islands that the Portuguese, they've been there first, Bagzeed, they've got their castles and the forts, they're patrolling the seas, and the English and Dutch burst in and fight for control. So it's a very specific aim. So it's interesting. We think about the East India Company as being India, but actually at first it's the Indies. India comes a bit later. That's right. When do they go to mainland India? When they can't compete with the Dutch or the Portuguese, the ability to kind of join up with private enterprise and fund the East India Company is a good strategy by Elizabeth and then James I. But England still cannot marshal the resources of the Dutch, for example. Their economy is highly commercialised. They're predominantly a maritime facing country. The fleets they send are bigger. They muscle out the Portuguese and they take over. And the English are hovering around. And literally the only time they can access these spices is when the Dutch aren't looking and they zoom in, grab them and zoom out. And often they're chased out by the Dutch. And very shortly, you've got an odd situation where the English and the Dutch in Europe are best friends. But in the East Indies, they are fighting tooth and nail. And the English suffer several defeats and a particularly grisly massacre of the English East India Company on the island of Amboina by Dutch East India Company officials. Over 10 of them are tortured and executed because the Dutch, they don't want anyone else taking a slice of the spice trade. When was that? 
1623 and 1624, the English withdraw really from the spice trade. The Dutch hear a conspiracy by the English and Japanese mercenaries on the island that they're going to overthrow the Dutch and take over the castle. And there's a fabulous pamphlet literature of depictions of the Dutch torturing the English, such a kind of bloodthirsty public audience that was. Obviously, the Stuarts would absolutely consume this en masse. And it's from that point on that the English need to find an alternative trade to tap into. Now, unbeknownst to them, by the end of the 17th century, the spice trade would decline because so much of it is being imported into Europe. But the next new commodity are textiles from India. So actually, James I has already sent an ambassador to India. I'm quite fascinated with this man, Sir Thomas Rowe. So he goes to the court of Jahangir, 1615. Tell me about that. So Thomas Rowe is selected to go to the court of the Mughal emperor because the company have had a little bit of a presence in India. Really from 1609 and then 1611, they're trying to set up shop in a place called Surat, which is the biggest port in the Western Indian Ocean, a place called Gujarat. It's the main port of the Mughal empire. And anyone who's anyone is trading here. And this is how you access India's fabulous manufacturers, especially textiles. But these English Indian companies have no luck gaining the rights from the Mughal emperor that would allow them to trade there. They need something called a farman, which is an imperial decree from the emperor himself says, yes, you can trade here and you can do it on these terms. And until they get that document, they're very much unsettled and unable to compete. Now, the problem is they are merchants and they are depicted by the Mughals as merchants. And like in any country, there's a social hierarchy and access to the court needs someone with some flair and some royal credentials. So the company go cap in hand to James the First and you know, can you send us someone on your behalf, some kind of diplomat that can flash a nice silk cape and great hat and make some kind of impression on Jangahir and the court. And James I selects Sir Thomas Rowe, not necessarily because he's an experienced diplomat. I mean, Sir Thomas Rowe himself is absolutely desperate for cash. His patron, Prince Henry, has died. Princess Elizabeth has gone off to Germany to marry a prince and he's left without any patron. So he jumps at the chance to benefit from this position. I mean, there's a little bit of Spanish from his time with Sir Walter Riley, but really that's it. But he can talk the talk and he's dispatched and he arrives at the end of 1615 on behalf of the East India Company, but as a representative of the English Crown. And that's a balancing act he finds really hard. Is he just representing a bunch of merchants of a low social status or is he there as the representative of James I? Now, James I knows why he's there. He says to him just before he departs, I want you to let them know that I am obeyed by everyone in my kingdom and I have a fierce reputation. I'm beloved by everyone. So he wants there to go make a splash for the English crown. The company want him to go there to get this charter so they can make some money. And on the ships out, he sort of keeps his head below deck because the captains are worried that he's trying to usurp their authority as they're the senior East India Company. So already the tension is growing. So he gets to India. He's very ill. He can't go anywhere for a few months. So it doesn't start well. And he tracks the court down it's not in the capital, Agra. The Jangir is out and about fighting wars and he's currently campaigning in central India. So it takes him some months to finally track the court down. And to be fair to Sir Thomas Rowe, he does what James I wants him to do. He makes a proper courtier's entrance into the court. And we know from extensive documentation that he left, a diary. Well, we say a diary. It's kind of a diary slash, you know, an account that he can be read by the king himself. Yeah, it's got an eye to posterity and to the court. Absolutely. And he says that if you read those documents. I'm writing about this because it's going to be important, you know, our future intercourse with India. So he's writing something that he knows that he needs to be seen as successful. 
And it's a really interesting read. He's there for about two years and it evolves over time. And he starts out and it's somewhat a fascination. He immediately starts with what's kind of rather traditional and stereotypical at this time you know it's almost like the oriental despot's handbook the very first entrance into the court he describes the emperor's taking a three-hour break to go to be with his women he's surrounded by eunuchs and then he watches an elephant gouge a wild beast and so it's all this very effeminate very kind of indulgent despotic oriental court this is how he paints it and you know he gradually learns it's anything but But that doesn't necessarily suggest that his picture of the Mughal court gets any better. In fact, I think it's very much an account of him understanding the power and the complexities of the Mughal state, which in a way creates this kind of backlash. He understands that he's not taken seriously. He's unable to connect with the emperor in a way that he demands his reputation and his authority. They don't care about James I. And we know that because there's not really an account other than Sir Thomas Rowe and one companion with Sir Thomas Rowe who basically validates Rowe's account of the Mughal court as being very despotic and very oriental. And the only sort of footmark that he's there is an image that's painted by a courtier of Jahangir's who depicts him on this hourglass throne. And the bottom left is a little image of James I. But he's at the bottom of a number of rulers and then there's the Ottoman Sultan. And and therefore we know that that suggests the kind of way in which the court depicted these English merchants and this courtier that they've sent him as not very important. Yeah, it's very striking, isn't it, that you've got Roe keeping his diary and at the same time the emperor Jahangir is keeping his own memoirs and he doesn't mention Roe at all. Roe does not feature. <laughs> That's how much of an impression he's making. Absolutely not. Historians have sort of really tussled over this but for me reading it it's obvious I think why. I mean the English don't really have anything to offer that other Europeans can't in more volume. The Portuguese are well entrenched and at the court we know that there are Jesuits whispering in the emperor's ear like here come the they often refer to as the fish people you know they're just fishing off the North Sea this image that Rose trying to represent of the Stuart courts being this fearsome, undermined every term by the Jesuits who are laughing at the idea. They're there to ask for things. They want a charter. They want trading rights. And they take some gifts and they're not really well received at all. We know that Rose says they so uncivilly just took the gifts and no sign of thanks. Can you believe that? You know, that just really shows how the English just are very marginal, very kind of on the fringes of the Mughal world. Whereas Sir Thomas Rowe wants to insert himself within it and ridicule it so he can show that he's not been unsuccessful. You can't be successful with these people. So it's not my fault if this embassy is not really going to achieve anything because this is a despotic country and the emperor's on campaign and he ridicules the campaign or he's fighting over some rotten castles, he calls them. And these are giant citadels in the wealthiest place in the world at this point. So for me, it gets more bitter, the account that Roe writes until the end where he's in a way just written the entire place off because he hasn't succeeded and the English position has not really advanced much through Rose Embassy. Yes. It is interesting, though, that he does leave a piece of advice which, had it been heeded, would have perhaps changed everything (laughs) on saying, let this be received as a rule, if you will profit, seek it at sea and in quiet trade, for without controversy it is an error to affect garrisons and land wars in India which is something that the English and later the British pay no attention to at all. 
Yes, partly he's got one eye on the Portuguese and the Dutch, who both are present at court. And certainly the Portuguese in West India have created what we would see as a proper territorial empire. of Fortified cities and massive war fleets that are patrolling, they're enforcing an aggressive monopoly. The Dutch are doing the same in the East Indies. They've just taken over the Sultanate of Jakarta, renamed it Batavia, and it's now rebuilding it into a European city. And so he sees this as kind of a folly. And you're absolutely right. And in a way, I think that piece of advice tells us how Roe really felt that he was impressed by the power of the Mughals. And he knows that there is no profit. The company is not going to, especially the weakness of the company in the state, it can't come here with fleets and demand what it needs. It needs to act in a submissive, pliant way. And they don't heed that later on. But for much of the 17th century, not necessarily heeding Rose's advice, but that is the strategy that does eventually pay off. And even in this period, we see a Portuguese decline because of the sheer expense of maintaining their fortresses and their fleets. It's more than the profit they get from the trade there. So I think Roe was right. Whether he was consciously heeded or that's just the route the English end up going because they're so weak, that's another thing. Catastrophic warfare, bloody revolutions and violent ideological battles. I'm James Rogers and over on the Warfare Podcast we're exploring the vast history of ferocious global conflict. We've got the classics. Understandably, when we see it from hindsight, the great revelation in Potsdam was really Stalin saying, yeah, tell me something I don't know. The unexpected... And it was at that moment that he just handed her all these documents that he'd discovered sewn into the cushion of the armchair. And the never-ending. So arguably, every state that has tested nuclear weapons has created some sort of effect to local communities. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Join us on the front line of military history. 
So where did the company first establish posts in India then, after that, in the 1620s? So they eventually do get their farming for Surat. And Surat becomes the headquarters of the East India Company, where they import something like 90% of their trade from India goes through Surat onto company ships back into Europe. But then they start to establish a presence elsewhere. So once they withdraw from the East Indians after the Amboina massacre, a decade later, they start to set up on the eastern side of India. So what we call the Coromandel Coast today, they established Madras in 1640. From the 16-teens, they're in a place called Masalapatam, which is a major port. But with the establishment of Madras, Masalapatam starts to decline and Madras becomes the key port of the Bay of Bengal. Then they travel up to northern India and start to establish factories and posts in Bengal. And by the end of the century, Bengal is the economic heart of India. It's the most prosperous, most populous province. And they're there from about the 1650s onwards. And that becomes the direction all the way into the 18th century. So the kind of East, Coromandel, Madras and Bengal and Hooghly and eventually Calcutta. So let's slow down and have a look at that. Because what's really fascinating to me in reading what you've written about this is how much we've got some crisis decades in the yeah. early to mid 17th century and it looks very unlikely that they're going to succeed in mainland India you know might be booted out just as they were out of the East Indies yeah part of my argument is that we often see this is just one big story of success this kind of rise of the English they go from strength to strength actually no they're going from one crisis to another and one dead end to another and what happens is that part of this experimental phase in the early 17th century and Roe is part of that they're trying this and they're trying that but the English state and the East India Company just don't have the resources to compete and to make a big splash in India not just against other Europeans but against other Asian groups especially the Chinese as well so by about the sun of 1630s, the company is basically running out of money. It can't attract the investment because the spice trade isn't really finding the profit they need. The cost of sending out ships and establishing factories is something like £3 million by 1630, which is an absolute fortune. And the company start to withdraw their factories, they start to entrench to cut down on the cost. And then there's obviously a constitutional crisis in England as well, with the rule of Charles I, and then the Civil War, and the Crown Charter, which is the basis of their existence, is allowed to lapse, and suddenly the trade to Asia is opened up to anyone who wants to go there from England. And therefore the East India Company starts to disintegrate, and they're desperate for a charter, and in 1657 they even put up the East India Company for sale on the Royal Exchange. They write a bill of sale, £14,000, it's yours, which I think is a still a bargain. And therefore, there's no more investment or treasure being sent out. In the year 1656, no ship at all is sent out to India. And the company servants are basically left on their own. And they write all these depressing letters. They're very melancholy. Oh, if you're going to leave and abandon us, please send out one more ship to bring us home. So there's a financial and constitutional crisis. And what we see in this instance, it's not the collapse of the company, although it almost does. We see it's servants on the spot, on their own, out in Asia, looking then to alternative sources of commercial profit and political patronage. So they turn away from Europe and they look to their own private interests. You know, they're out there thousands of miles from home. The mortality rate is insane. They're not doing it for a love of country or company. They're there to make a lot of money. And if the company can't do that for them, they'll do it themselves. So what we see in the, by the mid 17th century are company servants on their own initiatives going out and forging new commercial relationships and even setting up entirely new settlements almost of their entire own accord and through their own resources in partnership increasingly with non-Europeans. Yes because that's a very interesting thing you've discovered is that from 
I don't know if it starts in Madras in the 1640s or if it's even earlier up the Coromandel coast, it seems you find evidence of the company establishing itself through adaption, through integration into existing Asian social and political and economic communities, so the marriage, mixed-race families, business partnerships. And the picture you paint feels very much the opposite of the sort of social isolation or the condescendingly superior imperialist culture that we get by the 19th century. So could you talk a bit about that and give me some examples of English people who integrated with Indian society? You're absolutely right. Victorians often allude to these people that gun native. But actually, by the 1650s, almost every company servant in places like India have married into local families. And there's some absolutely fantastic examples. So just take the foundation of Madras, which is a bit legendary now in 1640. Madras really was brought almost into sheer existence through this chap called Francis Day, who's the settlement in Masalapatam is sunken in debt, the castle's falling down, there's no ships from England, and he's had enough. So he goes down the coast to this area called Madras Patnam, kind of a fishing hamlet on a stretch of sandy beach and he starts to visit and to do some private trade with the big community there, the Indo-Portuguese which are a result of really centuries of Portuguese and Indian people intermarrying and raising mixed race or mestizo families so they're straddling both worlds the worlds of Europe and Asia and the English regard them almost as indigenous as a non-European group and they're a great broker between the English and the indigenous Indians in that part. And so he's striking up with these deals and then he meets an Indo-Portuguese woman whom he establishes a relationship with and pretty soon these are all kind of elite families, they're big traders, they're successful and he has access to the court of the local bigwig, the Nayak or the governor. A Hindu governor. We're quite south here. We're not in Mughal Muslim India. And from him, he establishes a personal relationship and strikes up a deal where the company can set up a fort, which is still quite a rare concession to a European. And Francis Day soon has three mixed race children with his Indo-Portuguese wife, who sadly we know nothing about. He's built a stately home for her at Madras with orchards and gardens. These are now the new company elite. They are not Protestant and he converts to Catholicism. They're more Catholic than Protestant. They're more Indo-Portuguese than English. This is more of a private affair than a corporate or public affair. And soon Francis Day is basically single-handedly financing the building of Fort St. George, which you can still go to Chennai in India and visit today. And he's doing that by raising capital or money from all of his expanded family networks. And they become so reliant on their mixed race families that one of them, Andrew Cogan, who becomes the next governor of Madras, he says, right, I've got to go away for a couple of years, back to London. And they're like, please don't go. We rely on your family to fund the building of the fort and the trade and he has to stay there. So they become really enmeshed in these local networks. And it's these local networks that are funding English trade, building the fort and establishing political relationships at a time when the authorities in London are fighting each other, the king's had his head chopped off, there's no royal charter, there's no ships coming out. And so we see a real change from, not necessarily from the year 1640, but around then, to focusing on getting what they need in India by becoming an integrated part of their local surroundings. So it feels like they're pulling in a very different direction to what's happening in England, where it is all about radical Protestantism and it's all about losing their charter and the king losing his head. Is the picture you're painting that the difficulties at home with civil war and interregnum are meaning that the company is just becoming really quite discreet from the English activities? 
Part of it can be explained by what's happening in England, but in a way that ascribes too much agency or influence at this point. Part of it is the way in which Asian communities and rulers were willing to bring the English into their kind of local structures of power and they're willing to appoint the English to these important positions and allow them to build forts because debt was going to profit them as well. And they often state this very clearly, you know, we're bringing in merchants to increase our revenue and to increase trade and your fortresses will secure us from our enemies. So in a way that suggests that they don't see the English as a threat but also they can see a value to bring in. And it isn't just the English. Asian states, especially in India, are very receptive to bringing in outsiders and using them for their own particular benefit and to the benefit of those foreign groups as well. And not just Europeans, but other Asian groups are brought into the communities like this. But certainly the instability at home gives the individual company servant the chance to take this initiative, where, as previously, they would be disciplined or brought back home. That just isn't happening. So in 1657, you mentioned they think about selling the company, that after 60 years, they're going to throw in the hat. What happens and how is it saved? Well, they think they're going to have a better chance with Oliver Cromwell. Charles I allows the charter to lapse. He's got his own troubles, but it's partly as a way to reward other English merchants in the hope that he would be able to benefit from loans, from help. So he breaks that monopoly. So when he dies and the Republic is established, and then the Protectorate, they lobby Cromwell. You know, he's shown himself to be quite interested in expanding tax Spain in the Western design in 1655. But there's no luck. But actually, really, Cromwell's playing hardball with the company. He wants lots of gifts and they don't really have the money. And so they're putting up the company for sales a bit of a tactic. It's like, oh, OK, we'll push us anymore. Don't give us our charter and we'll sell the whole thing to someone else. So it kind of works. So they put the company up for sale and I don't think seriously. Three months later, Cromwell provides a new charter. But it's the biggest charter the company's ever received. There's a number of things. The company isn't just like a trading company where members come together and pull their resources. It's a joint stock which means that not only are they pulling resources, but any profit is carved out in dividends and it operates exactly like a modern corporation. But it was never permanent. The voyages were all individual. There wasn't one case of structure. So he makes it a permanent joint stock corporation, which means that it now has long-term stability. And finally, the company is an interesting prospect again for investors. And in 1658, the following year, it could raise something like three quarters of a million pounds in investment. Previous years had been 100,000. So suddenly it's a player again. In the year before it sent out no ships, in 1658 it sends out a fleet of 20 ships to Asia, full of money, full of new orders. This is the authorities back in England, the board of directors, the crown, trying to reinsert themselves and to take control again of the direction of the company. They see that these settlements have sprung up by initiative of their own servants. By way, they've sort of said, no, don't do that. And their servants have not listened and just done it. And now they've got teeth again and they're trying to wrestle the control back. So then when, obviously, with the end of the protectorate and the restoration of Charles II, he takes advantage of his royal prerogatives. And monopolies are seen as a tool of his power. And therefore he passes several new charters which give the company new powers. It gives them the ability to wage war, for example. A trading company, if you think maybe Amazon or Apple being able to wage war, slightly scary prospect. You have a trading company now with the power to wage war on other states. It can exercise civil and criminal powers over the people in its settlements. And you know, again, imagine Amazon or Apple being able to sentence their employees to death. So they give them this almost state-like powers. And it's a real kind of a restoration of royal support for the company. So 
So how is this received, say, from the late 1660s in India itself, this change of direction from the company in London? Yeah, not very well. It's like any company where it's been very slack with employee discipline and suddenly there's a new boss and everyone's got to do as they're told. No, not very well, because, of course, we think of the stakeholders of the company being these English gentry and the king. But actually, in the past couple of decades, as they've kind of melted away and company servants have kind of integrated themselves, it's got a new bunch of shareholders. You know, It's got local rulers and mixed race Indo-Portuguese merchants, and they now have a stake in how the company operates. So none of them take it very well. And the ships arrived from 1658 onwards with orders that tried to centralise authority back on London. And so I'll give you an example. At Madras in the early 1660s, which is under the rule of Sir Thomas Winter, who has a mixed-race family, who appoints many of those families to positions of power at Madras. He has intimate relationships of commercial and social nature with the leading Indian elites and they run Madras Patnam, the town that grows up outside Fort St George and they have political power as well and judicial power, they run the courts at Madras and so there's a coalition of Anglo-Asian elites now firmly in control of Madras and these ships arrive with a new governor that's going to take over and new East India Company officials that come over and they're going to purge the establishment, replace the Indian elites in their positions of power, for example, from the town hall, from the civil and criminal courts. And it's kind of a clean sweep and they don't take it easy. So in one particular episode in 1665, a rebellion happens in Madras. So those that have been replaced and almost all of them are well integrated into Indian society, they get together and they storm the new governor's chambers and they overthrow him and they lock them all up. And then they go on a sort of bloody purge of the city. Anyone who's against them ends up on the chopping block or locked up. In fact, the prisons at Madras are so full that they have to start using the warehouses. They throw all the goods out of the warehouse and start locking people up. And we see this from letters smuggled out of the prison on ships to London. You know, help us, these people have gone crazy. But what this actually is, is a kind of a backlash against that attempt to segregate the English from their Indian allies and partners and to anglicise Madras. Madras still doesn't have an Anglican church, still has a Catholic church. It relies on its powers from the grants given to it by Indian rulers. The company want to re-anchor it back in that kind of English framework. So you can see this as a backlash from these sort of transnational partnerships against this purely English idea of Madras. And they hold Madras as an independent city for three years until the company appealed to Charles II. They're like, help us, these bloody mutineers, they called them. And he orders a proclamation for the rebels to give up Madras back to the company. And the company finance a large war fleet. All their ships are commercial ships. They have to get together a war fleet not against any Asian ruler, but against their own people in their own city to retake Madras. And they do in 1668. But I think what's really interesting about that mutiny is that it just tells us about how well entrenched the company servants had become in their local worlds, these Asian worlds. And they had been more successful in developing the company than England or the corporate board ever had. And what's interesting is none of those rebels are punished. Instead, that they're pardoned. And all of the Indian elites are restored back to their offices of power. The company legalises private trade, which previously had been clamped down upon as very corrupt. And therefore they're given concessions. The company are understanding that the way forward is probably working with local Asian elites as a way to succeed. They can't rely on projecting themselves from Europe. It's not going to work. That's fascinating because you'd have thought actually that the episode you've described is extraordinarily dramatic and you'd have thought that perhaps the response to it would have been 
to really clamp down on this sort of centralised control. But you're saying that actually they continue to have an integrated response with regard to the local community. I feel very sorry for the guy, Sir George Foxcroft, who was this English governor sent out to replace the previous administration. And he's the first one locked up. His son is shot. He's thrown in prison. He's writing these letters out, smuggling that helpers. You know, and he's restored after the mutiny's ended. And he sees his usurper walking around Madras happily after the mutiny. And he's writing, you know, this isn't right. You can't let them do this. And in a way, he's part of that early 17th century school of thought in which the East India Company is an English overseas enterprise and we must uphold English interests. And that's not going to be successful unless you go the Dutch or Portuguese way and throw ships and armies and forts at your trade. And the English can't do that. So they have to adapt and they have to become part of this cross-cultural world. And poor old George Foxcroft never understood that. Do we have examples then from that later period, the 1670s, of integration? Yeah, so at this point, really, what happens is all future new company settlements and communities take on what I would call the Madras model of really anchoring themselves and bringing in Indian elites and rulers and merchants to help them succeed. And just further up the coast, up the other end of the Coromandel coast, near Masalapatam, which is this big port, although it's in decline now, there's a chap called Robert Fleetwood, and he's built a big brick palatial house in a little town called Nasapur and his house lines the river bank and in the rooms of his palatial house are filled with his a mixed race Indo-Portuguese family. He's holding court with Mughal merchants and they're doing big trade deals. One trade deal he's got going in partnership with a local Mughal merchant invests 10,000 rupees and they're taking textiles from the Coromandel coast and going to Persia to exchange for horses and silk. So he's anchored in this world, but he's also, from 1670, appointed the Golconda. Golconda is the local state. It's the sultanate in central India, and it controls this part of the Coromandel And he becomes a Golconda governor. He's appointed by the sultan to run this part of the sultanate's territory. So on the one hand, he's the English chief of the East India Company factory there. But on the other, he's also the Golconda official that the company has to negotiate with. So you can imagine him sitting in a room on his own, negotiating with himself after <laughs> the company, changing chairs, taking a tough line for Golconda Sultan. And it's a really interesting hybrid. This is how far the kind of intermingling integration has gone. And he gradually contracts with the Sultan to govern more and more towns in the region until he's built up a little private bellywick, like fiefdom. And this, for most of the 1670s, he does this. And he uses the revenue of those towns to make more partnerships with Indian elites until he's really the local Indian bigwig in this part of India. And yet he's also the English East India Company chief responsible for negotiating with himself. So when does this all change? It's very drawn out and never really goes away. It's just hidden very well. And we know even in the Victorian period that this happens. But really the broader change is that, let's enter the 18th century. Now the company's used its integration with those local powers and those local elites to expand. It's not a military expansion. We often think of European empire as a projection of Europe's force, superiority. That's not how the company has expanded. It's expanded within those existing states and communities. It's not undermined them. And we always want to think of it as mutually exclusive, as a European presence being mutually exclusive to a strong and stable Asian society. And, you know, in a way that just robs those Asian communities of their agency. But the way it worked was to bring outsiders in and enfranchise them and benefit from their presence. Now, that works because the English operation is not too big. It's not too powerful. But by the 18th century, 
the English have assembled an empire within an empire. The Mughal Empire has taken over now most of India, and now all of the company settlements are within Mughal jurisdiction and territory. And what happens is that the English have, in a way, slightly parasitical. They've grown very wealthy through the power of the Mughal Empire. The Mughal Empire has coddled them, has nourished the company, and the company has imported millions of tons of silver and gold into Mughal coffers. The textile trade, which the East India Company was the main player in, employs hundreds of thousands in Bengal alone. So it's become an important economic player in the Mughal Empire, to the empire's benefit. But what happens is by about the 1730s, 1740s, the East India Company have managed to acquire so many benefits. And some of them are fine, extra territory, the right to build a fort here and there. But some of them are pretty destabilising. So in 1717, they acquire a farmer that's called the Imperial Farmer. And it gives the probably the most sweeping privileges and rights to any European in Asia at that point. And one of them is customs-free trade. And the company, it takes a lot of work to get this. There are 200,000 rupees worth of gifts sent to Delhi on a train of 80 bullocks, 1,200 Indian porters. One of them is like an embroidered Persian silk map of the world, ornate mechanical European clocks. And the emperor is so happy and he signs this imperial farming. Customs-free trade, now, the company become the most competitive trader, even more competitive than Indian merchants in India. They don't have to pay tax on their trade, their profits go through the roof, they can invest more, and they can pay more as well for the goods. But that essentially robs the Mughal Empire of a massive stream of revenue. The revenue they raised on increasing European trade by the mid-18th century was humongous. It's one of the key forms of revenue of the Mughal Empire. And suddenly, then, the growth of the company has gotten to a point where It's starting to undermine the communities it operates within. And then the cities, what started out these kind of small grants of territory for the company to open a factory on, they've now grown into giant metropolises. Calcutta in Bengal is now bigger than the Mughal capital at Murshidabad. And they have these extra territorial privileges where within the walls of their European cities, the Mughal authority doesn't have a reach. So Mughal merchants move there. They use the company's passes. They're not paying tax on their goods. They can't be held accountable by Mughal law. And so you can think of company settlements as tax havens. And they are prospering and they're beyond the jurisdiction of local authorities. And by about 1740, it's a problem. And several Mughal governors and emperors challenged the company. And the company just about escaped punishment by throwing enough money. One, Alivadi Khan, the ruler of Bengal, demands 400,000 rupees and the company pay it because he's sort of saying, you know, if you don't, then I can't tolerate. Now, he dies and his successor, Siraj Abdullah, he's had enough. And the first priority is to clamp down on these European East India companies. So it's not just the English, although they're the leading one. It's the Dutch as well and the French. And he kind of tests them. He demands an extravagant tribute. And the English are like, oh, we just paid that to your predecessor. And it's not really our fault he died. And now you're asking for more money. And they don't pay it. And in a way, that talks to the confidence of the English now. As opposed to 100 years earlier, when they were meek and suppliant and desperate for any kind of privilege. And now they've become they're so well entrenched. They're proper fat cats living off the wealth of the land and confident behind their fortified settlements. To say no, 100 years ago, that would have been unthinkable. And Siraj Adul is not playing and he storms Calcutta and he takes it and captures it and occupies it. And the company lose something like £4 million sterling as a result of the loss. 
So they become a destabilising presence, whereas even a couple of generations before, they were productive and contribute to the economy and upheld the authority of the Mughal emperor. They're almost like Asian vassals. That's how the company operated. And now they're defying Indian authority. They're undermining the economy with their tax-free trade, their monopolies. And then really from 1756, when Calcutta is captured, the English state has changed as well. It's the British state. The 1707 union with Scotland, stronger, it's more capable. It's just emerging from the Nine Years' War, the War of Spanish Succession with massive Royal Navy. Its tax has changed, its trade has changed. It's now more capable of intervening overseas. And it sticks its nose into East India Company business. And so the state sends out a big fleet to recapture Calcutta. And that's really the first time the British army or British forces have come to India. It's always been the company and company forces, and they haven't been very big. And so they use that army. Okay, let's not just recapture Calcutta. Let's get rid of this guy and let's put a puppet on the throne. And then it kind of spirals from the Battle of Plassey in 1757 onwards. So then everything has changed. And we've had, after 150 years, the way that the British are engaging with the Indians has completely reversed. Yeah, I mean, it's taken 150 years, but it, those strategies they developed from a place of weakness. Well, how do we accommodate our weakness? We can't flex or have to behave ourselves. But in doing so, they were growing quietly within the body of the Mughal polity. But some of these rulers like, oh, you know, they've done very sneakily, have assembled this empire within an empire. And it's tilted the balance of power. And you see that arrogance in the way they start to deal with their Indian partners and friends by the 1750s. Well, thank you so much, David. This has just been a fascinating insight. And I think it just gives such a different perspective on a story that we think we know. And I really appreciate you bringing these insights to us. So thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Susie. If you enjoyed this episode, please recommend this podcast to your friends and family and do share it on social media. And also please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. Thank you. When your skin feels nourished and glows, you radiate confidence. Osea makes giving your skin a glow up easy with their clean, clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This seaweed-powered duo features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.